Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Join us as we explore Tolkien and all the ages of Middle-earth with your hosts from TheOneRing.com, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Well, you know, this is going to be a little bit different of a week. In fact, this is going to be completely different on Exploring Tolkien than anything that we've done before. So if you're watching on YouTube, it's, it's just just me. So sorry about that. Uh, it's the summer. Uh, schedules are tough. And the unexpected happens sometimes. And so we had to delay our talk about on fairy stories and uh, uh, Tolkien's part on children, which I'm really looking forward to because that's a really interesting part of it. Uh, but in lieu of that, this is unique. So in, you know, I've been doing TheWondering.com since 1999. And in 2003, on December 2nd, let's see, December 2nd, 2003, I was invited to interview with a bunch of other journalists and mind you i was just a young guy who wasn't a journalist i just ran a website uh with a couple other folks and um uh you know we were kind of part of the zeitgeist of the times of we had a message board that got fifty thousand people a day uh back before social media before you know communication was as easy as it was with phones now uh, and so it was a big thing. And, uh, and so New Line Cinema invited us to the roundtable discussions with all the different actors and all the different uh, crew members. Well, not all the crew members, but Peter Jackson and Philippa Boynes, for instance. And to be a part of the roundtable discussions with journalists from the LA Times and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and uh, the Chicago Tribune, right? Uh, we were there at a hotel in, I think, Beverly Hills, sitting there not knowing what I was really doing, uh, but just soaking it all in and uh, being a part of this discussion that we were able to have with uh, the folks who created The Lord of the Rings. And so this episode, this is us talking to Peter Jackson. And uh, there were seven of us around a table, and they'd come in, they'd sit down, we'd have about 20 to 30 minutes to discuss whatever was on our mind with, uh, with, uh, Peter Jackson. We also have recordings of Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen, Sean Aston, Bernard Hill, a bunch of them. I'll go over them at the end of the video. See if you guys want those too. But anyway, this is an interesting moment because this happens before we saw the return of the King. This happens before the Hobbit was even made. And you'll hear a little bit about that where, uh, I think I asked him about the Hobbit, uh, in this here, where, what the, what the status was. But, and the interesting thing is if you listen to it, he'll say like, he can't imagine anyone else doing the Hobbit. It would be kind of weird. Um, so that's interesting, but, uh, but this is this is a, a kind of a capture of a moment in time where he hadn't won the Oscars yet. The legacy hadn't been cemented, although the, he was asked about that. And like, you know, he's kind of happy that he made Lord of the Rings and this was his his legacy movie. Right. This is this. He knew that this would be the zenith of his career in a way. Uh, we asked him about uh, the extended editions, how much he'd like that. Um, we asked him about the extended editions and what those meant to him and you find out really he just made those for the fans which is kind of cool but also kind of like oh this isn't the definitive edition and, and listen to it and you'll, you'll hear what he says about that um but yeah it's only 20 minutes long uh but it's it's really fun to listen to it kind of ends abruptly after 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 it fades out there's nothing else really that happens it's just he stands up and there's a little bit of small talk for a couple minutes and you don't really hear anything um so i hope you enjoy it and I want to say it's a little tough to listen to because the mic really 
sucked. It was recorded on an iPod. It had a little iPod, you know, those awesome 10 gig ones, the white ones, scroll wheels. Um, it had a microphone on top. Uh, so I was able to record all these interviews, but whenever um, the audio levels would spike up, man, it would just static out. It would just peak and it sounded horrible. So I want to thank um, Lee Scrivener from the Speculative Tolkienism Show on the Deep Guild YouTube channel. I'll put a link below. Uh, he took the time and went through this and really made it listenable. It is it like if I showed you, if you heard the original audio here you would probably just turn it off right away so he did a yeoman's job of running through this and making it sound great well as good as is humanly possible so i hope you enjoy it um stay till the end i will be going through some of the pictures and talking a little bit more about this event uh in our extended edition for all of our for all of our real dedicated fans our supporters who you know uh, give us $4 a month. First month is free. And uh, you get the extended podcast. You get access to our Discord channel. Uh, a few other perks, too. Uh, you know, you know our, our, our book club is in full swing. I haven't made it the last couple of weeks. Sorry, guys. That's on Thursday nights. And then we also do a uh, uh, monthly just talk, right? We just get grab, go on Discord and go on video and just chat about whatever's on anybody's mind, ask questions, talk about the latest podcast episode, things like that. So go to com slash member. Uh, join there. You can hear the extended podcast. Uh, but once again, I want to just thank, uh, Lee Scrivener. I'll put the links below, um, from the speculative tokenism show, uh, on the deep guild YouTube channel for, for putting this together and to make it sound good. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in all likelihood, hopefully next week with, uh, on fairy stories. Uh, if not, we do have an interview lined up that we're hoping pans out this week that, uh, if it does pan out and we don't do on fairy stories, that'll be next week too. So enjoy this detour into an interview from 2003. Wow. It was great. A great way to, to finish, really. How is to work with so much pressure and expectations? I mean, you are editing this film and everybody is waiting to see what you have yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we were very much aware of the expectation this time around uh, because of the sort of momentum that had been built up with the other two. Um, I mean, we 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 felt that the third one was always going to be the strongest of the three. It was always my my favourite one to to shoot, because when we filmed the three movies back to back, um, back in 1999 and 2000, we we always liked the days that we were shooting Return of the King, because they we, they, they weren't really it wasn't it didn't have much exposition. It wasn't like you were having to introduce a whole lot of new characters, which was sort of a bit of a burden of the first two movies and. It was just getting on with the story, moving it towards its climax, and the climax for a lot of the characters is quite emotional, so the actors really enjoyed playing those scenes, and I enjoyed shooting them. So we always had this sort of reasonably positive feeling about The Return of the King, um, and, it, and it has an ending, it's the climax. It's sort of, you know, in some respects, it's, it's the reason why you make the first two, is to actually get to the third one. It's the point of the whole thing, really. Speaking of expectations, mm. uh, uh, yeah, I'm in awe of what you accomplished with mm. all three of them. Mm. But, like, with Orson Welles and his Citizen Kane or Selznick with Gone with the Wind, mm. do you think for the rest of your life as a filmmaker you will want to outdo this, or it's like a huge sigh of relief, like, I've done it? Mm. No, I, I think it's a, um, I, I, I think, look, yeah, because I'm never going to shoot three movies again at the same time, and I'm probably never going to shoot 
movies that are as widely successful and popular as these films, um, you know, I, I'm sort of aware that it's probably going to stand there as as the that accomplishment within my career, which is fine. I mean, I'm very comfortable with that. I, I've, uh, you know, <laughs> every filmmaker I guess dreams of making a successful movie, and uh, both critically and box office wise. And now that I've, I've made my successful movie, I'm happy now to. To have that pressure taken away from me, if if you know what I mean. So I'm not going to allow the rest of my career to be a miserable one in which I'm trying to top Lord of the Rings all the time. I just want to make movies that I enjoy making. I mean, I'm doing a remake of King Kong next, and then I, I really would like to make some much smaller films. And there's some good good New Zealand stories um, that I want to be able to shoot some true true stories. So I'm yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to make more fantasy films and more tr- trilogies. That's for sure. So you're not interested in doing Philandria trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was reported the other day that uh, you mentioned that you wouldn't mind finishing The Hobbit. Well, you know, they've never spoken to me about The Hobbit, and I keep getting asked about it right. all, the, all the time. Obviously, um, they've never spoken to me about it, and they they have problems with the rights because United Artists, I believe, but I think United Artists have distribution rights mm-hmm. to it, which is some historical thing going back to the 70s or 80s. So. So it would, it would need some very clever legal discussions to happen between universe, uh, between New Line and um, UA, and as far as I'm aware, those haven't, those, that hasn't happened. So I'm, yeah, I, I mean, I, people just keep asking me whether it would join the Hobbit. I said, well, I mean, it would, be, it would seem strange somebody else doing the Hobbit. Right. That would seem a bit weird. But I, I figure I'll just wait till, till the phone call happens, if, if it ever happens. So are you, what pressures are you feeling about King Kong? Um... Well, I'm not feeling too pressured at the moment because I've just come out of this pressure of getting rid of the pressure. The pressure on the start of the new year, I, I guess. Um, but um, uh, the pressure on King Kong. Um, well, the pressure is always just to make a good movie. I think any time you sit out to make a film, whether it's a tiny little budget film or a big budget film, the pressure is just to make something that audiences are going to like and enjoy. And uh, we're going to do a lot of script work in January, February. Um, we're shooting in next August. So Where? In New Zealand. Oh, yeah. And isn't yeah. Andy yeah. in it? Um, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure yet. I mean, we've been talking. We all, all of the all of the actors that we worked with on uh, Lord of the Rings are people I'd love to work with again. I mean, I'd love to do one of those Scorsese things where you kind of get this group of actors and you kind of work with them and film after film. So it's certainly our, our hope that we can get a few of our Lord of the Rings, more than one possibly, more um, some of, some of our Rings actors into Kong, and if not Kong, then films after Kong, whatever they they are. But um, we haven't we haven't certainly. Had any definitive decisions yet about them? Um, well, uh, uh, just one more thing. Yes. And I'll shut up. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. The film. Yeah. I mean, it, it had such a gigantic impact, mm. and just the, the the way he was developed and everything. It's yes. really pretty landmark. And I'm yes. kind of wondering about the idea of Gollum and the through line of that to Kong. Yeah. No. Sure. No. No. It's a good. It's a good point. Um, what, what, what we learned with Gollum, and what we are certainly thinking about with Kong, um, is the fact that obviously. What we Gollum was, what we did, which was very useful with Gollum, is we did cast an actor to play him. Um, and obviously, in the case of Gollum, as, as it was different to Kong, obviously, but he has a voice and there was dialogue to, to be spoken, spoken and everything. So, but, but it, and we cast Andy originally just to do the dialogue. I mean, we hired him for three weeks or something just to do the voice for, for Gollum. Um, like a cartoon character, and then we realised that, that that having Andy on set was going to be 
very valuable to us for Sean and Elijah's sake. And then we realised that when Andy was on set for Sean and Elijah, he was actually giving us all this re- really helpful stuff, all the movement and the facial expressions and everything else. So it was like an organic development. I mean, we, we didn't know how we were going to be got on, and we were sort of learning as we went. And so we ended up with um, we ended up with a situation where Andy was really able to play the character, and the animators were then able to take Andy's performance and to and to transpose it into the CG creature. So what we're thinking of doing for Kong, um, what, what's going to be most useful to me is to have an actor who represents Kong, who, whether they play Kong or not as such, I'm not sure, because he, he'll be a CG creature, obviously, and he's, and he's 25 foot tall. So we could never quite do what we did on set with Sean and Elijah, because Gollum was the same size as them, and it was all very sort of simple. But we are thinking about the concept of having an actor represent Kong, so that at least um, at least we can block scenes on the set and, and figure out bits of business and uh, with somebody who's actually there on Kong's behalf, if you like. He, um, so that's certainly something that we may, may well continue with. Yeah. The spiritual aspects of this uh, seem clearer than even in the book. Is that, mm. is that your intention? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, it, it, it was, you know, hopefully when you're adapting things, you try to make things clearer than they are in the book because cinema it needs to be, things need to be simplified for, for cinema generally, and you choose what you're trying to emphasise, and then they, yeah, they do become a bit stronger. Um, but certainly the concept, I mean, I, I found in Return of the King, I, I felt a lot of it was about Tolkien's war experiences too, his. his First World War experiences, and there was a there was a scene that we shot um, in the movie when they the hobbits return to Hobbiton, and they're in the pub, they're in the the inn of the Green Dragon, and that felt to me very much like um, what would have happened at the end of the first, the first World War, which obviously Tolkien experienced, where soldiers come back and and life around them has gone on, but 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 nobody really knows what they what they went through. Nobody can understand. They can't talk to their families. They can't talk to to their loved ones, how can you begin to have a conversation about the horrors that you saw and yet you meet up with your comrades and um, and there's just this unspoken understanding between you that you know you know what you went through. I mean, I think that's why a lot of lot of return servicemen's organisations were formed all around the world and New Zealand, it's, it's the RSA, we call it the RSA, I'm not sure what it's called here, the return servicemen's sort of the return soldiers kind of kind of um, groups. Yeah, is it? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that that's why they were formed, because soldiers just needed to be able to connect on a basic level of having an understanding amongst each other of what they went through, because they couldn't talk about it outside. And, and, and to me, that was sort of quite poignant, when they bring in the big pumpkin, and everyone's more interested in the pumpkin than they are about the of it. But in a way, that's what they did. They, they they did what they did so that the so that everybody could be excited about the pumpkins and continue to have their lifestyle. To follow on that, and I may be reading way too much into it. So yeah, you I'm can sure. Tell me if I'm off. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, the Shire mm. for me is like a moment or a place in time where you're you're safe and happy, and for the mm-hmm. hobbits to get back to the Shire, mm. they for them to like still climbing the mountain, they want to get back to the Shire, yeah. and it gives them the, the the energy to get a little further up the mountain. Where yeah. is the Shire for you? Where is that safe moment, that place? 
Well, New Zealand is where I am. New Zealand is the Shire, <laughs> and, and, and many, very, very many respects. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, I, I always love the Hobbit. I mean, I like the Hobbits. They're my favourite characters in Lord of the Rings, and I think I can sort of, sort of more consider myself a Hobbit than a human being or an elf. So I'm certainly not, not an elf. Um, you know, and I, and I think that that. You know, being being brought up in New Zealand, living in New Zealand, it's it's almost like you you do feel that when you go into the outside world that you're going into a slightly scary place, you know, mm. and you come back home and it's peaceful and simple and tranquil and um, and so I, I do get that sense. I mean, the Shire for Tolkien, the Shire really represented his beloved England in the pre pre industrial age because Tolkien always said that he he felt he was born a hundred years too late that he. He hated the way that industry, in the middle of the 1800s, industry in, invaded Britain and, and factories grew and smoke churned out of the chimneys and towns grew around the factories, you know, terraced housing, which was just feeding workers into the factory day after day. And you were enslaved. It was a form of enslavement to have to then spend your life a slave to the factory and to the machine. He hated the machines. And, and, um, and so a lot of his... A lot of Mordor and is all about the machine and the industrial age, and then what happened in the other two movies, sort of below Isengard, with all with all the fires and the furnaces and things. It was his horror of what had happened to England, and the Shire really represented a bygone age that had to be preserved. A small small piece of the old English countryside. What do fans get in the third one that's new? Um, in the first one was all about newness. The second one, they sort of got Gollum, which is kind of a new character, the new way do things. What do they get in the third one that's new? They get the ending. Which is I actually think the third one is not. The third one is just about the story uh, racing towards its climax. It's a bit about the characters. All, all of the characters, in some respects, are having to sacrifice something of, of, of themselves to in order to help their friends and and. You you actually get this very strong sense of conclusion in the film. I mean, I wanted to finish it in a way that felt like it was absolutely the the end. It was the final chapter, and there is no more. How how it works for you as an artist, it's safe to challenge yourself each moment in the process of it. Well, I, I I got you know during the principal photography where we shot for 15 months, um, I got tired. I, I didn't get physically tired so much, but I, I did, but I sort of plateaued out. I was able just to carry on physically, like, you know, the tortoise and the hare, and I'm like the tortoise just sort of plodding along and could keep on going. But I, I found it very frightening the way that I got mentally tired. I, I my, my mind started to get very closed in. And the last two or three months of the shoots, when we were right at the end, um, and I felt like I, I couldn't multitask anymore. I was really having to push myself to do imaginative things with the camera and you know I really felt I was sort of I, I was not as sharp as I used to be as it were and so I, I set myself a mental task I used to say that okay here's our script here's our storyboards here's the plan for what we were going to shoot today and I set myself a challenge of coming up with a good idea now it didn't matter what it was it could have been somewhere an interesting camera angle it could have been an interesting thing to direct the actors where there could have been something in the script that I changed it could have been Anything I thought now, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to work today, and I'm going to come up with a really good idea now. And, and so I, I sort of set myself this little task each each morning of looking at what we were doing that day and trying to come up with a, a, an idea that would improve what what was what, what was there. And that was a way of forcing myself to kind of keep on 
keep my imagination going, as it were, mm-hmm. keep it sort of pumping along. So how was it each time that you have to go back to reshoot every year? I mean, every summer. How was like well, 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 that, that's great because what what happens is at the end of the 15-month shoot, you obviously you regain your, your imagination and your energy because you have a rest, and it all kind of comes back again. And then you cut the movie, and for each of the last three years, we've 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 edited that year's movie, you know, Fellowship, and then Two Towers, and now Return of the King, and then we we're able to look in the, in, in in the great. I mean, the great thing is just to have that distance away from from when we originally shot and be able to look to look at, look at the movie and to say, okay, we, these are scenes that we'd like to shoot. We'd like to improve it here. We'd like to enhance the movie there. We'd like to do some uh, so, uh, make the story a bit clearer. And so we then have the actors coming back for some pickup shoots. I mean, it's a great way way, way to make a movie. Um, we shot a few. So some of the pickups we shot this year were things like the the, the scene I talked about earlier in the pub when they, when they come home. At the end, we we shot everything on Mount Doom originally, and we shot the um, the Grey Havens originally at the very end of the film. But I hadn't I hadn't got anything that really, to me, represented the homecoming of the Hobbits and what their world was now like. So we so we wrote that scene in the pub um, for the, for the four of them, and we shot that. We did a lot of the battle of Pilnall Fields this year because we hadn't because we didn't have to shoot. Um, we, we shot stuff with the actors originally, like we shot all the stuff of Theoden on his horse giving the speech before they charged down the hill, mm-hmm. was part of the original shoot. But once they charged down, yeah. we went into so much um, computer work that we never obviously sh- shot anything for that originally because there wasn't really anything to shoot, it was all sort of computers. So we did a, a lot of that work this, this year around that whole battle scene with the elephants was done. Was done. Um, we had to shoot a lot of horse action uh, to go along with that. Um, we, we obviously developed quite a few CG horses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've stuck yeah. pretty close to books, but what about the places you vary from the Tolkien fanatics? Or? Well, we've, I mean, we vary from the books all the time, really. I, I, I think that it's, I mean, there's nothing in our movies where moment by moment we're, we're exactly the same as the books. Everything changes, whether it's to a tiny degree or, or a huge degree. Um, it changes all the way through. Um, uh, the book. I mean, the Return of the King has um, the Return of the King has six, sixty or seventy pages of a different storyline after the Ring is destroyed, um, with the scouring of the Shire, where the Shire has been invaded by orcs. Um, but we just felt we couldn't go there. I just, yeah, we just felt that the Ring being destroyed was the end of our story, and then we just wanted to give our characters a, some conclusion after that. So we didn't do this, what's called the scouring of the Shire. Um, I mean, we change things a lot. The Hulot sequence that's in this movie with the spider is actually in the end of the Two Towers book. Yeah. But um, when we were structuring the screenplays right at the very beginning, and we were laying out the, the, the different um, events from each script and, 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 and working out the structure, that we, we couldn't we couldn't just we couldn't figure it away in which Hulot would would actually work in the Two Towers movie. So we mm-hmm. we shifted her into this movie. So there's not, I mean, there's actually some quite big big changes. Of those, but that's not. Speaking of changes, you, you essentially have two versions of the movie, you, or you will at, at one stand, because the mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. out with the expanded mm-hmm. edition. Mm-hmm. When you were editing the theatrical edition, mm-hmm. and, and I think most Tolkien fans um, probably always love the extended edition more, because the more they get, you know, mm-hmm. the, more they, the more there's to love. So, what was the hardest thing to cut out for this year? Was it was it Saruman in the beginning? There's been a big uprising mm-hmm. for, for Saruman being cut in the beginning mm-hmm. of the, the, the swan, or, um, the hardest thing to cut out. Um, um, it's a good question. I, I, 
I don't think we, we, we allowed ourselves a bit more time with this film because the other movies have all been two hours, 50 minutes plus credits, so they sort of end up being just below three hours. And this one, we we were at three hours, 12 plus credits. And so we, we always allowed ourselves a bit more time with this film because we felt we needed to put into the movie what we felt we needed to put in. So we actually didn't really take anything out, um, out that, uh, that should have been in the film because we would have been happy just to put it in and have a film a bit longer mm-hmm. if, if it worked. I mean, we took things out that we felt were not were, were getting in the way of our, of, of our pacing. Um, and the Simon scene was obviously an example of that. I mean, the irony with the Simon scene, it was never supposed to be in this film anyway because it was a scene that was shot for the two towers. Simon never appeared in Return of the King in the first place, and uh, we we we, could, we didn't use the scene in the Two Towers, and we we didn't put it into the extended edition of the Two Towers because we were holding it back. We thought it was possibly going to be a, a, an idea to start Return of the King, and, and as it was, when we put it into the cut and looked at the cut, it didn't really. It, it just felt like we were finishing off last year's film and not not jumping into the events of this movie, which we felt we needed to really do. So, but I, I'll, I'll make sure it goes into the extended um, Return of the King. There was, there was, there's lots of scenes. I mean, there was about, a, there's about an hour of footage. At some point this year, we had a four-hour, 15-minute version of this film, and so every actor has lost seven or eight minutes worth of stuff. It, it's like there's a great, there's a great scene with um, Legolas and Gimli having having a drinking comp- competition, seeing who who can um, stand stand up the longest, <laughs> um, which we had in the part of, as part of that banquet scene at the beginning of the film, but. We, we, we didn't use that because we felt we just wanted to keep it a bit more ten, tense at the beginning, keep some tension going, get some... We, we felt going, jumping into a comedy moment at the beginning was not helping us sort of establish the, um, the, you know, the, 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 the tension within our story, so... Um, but that would be good for the DVD. I, I mean, you're right in the sense that I always regard these extended DVDs to be... People say are they the definitive version of the movie, and I, and, and I don't actually believe they are. I mean, if I'm concerned, I'm not doing them to create some sort of definitive version. I'm doing them for the fans because mm-hmm. I figure the only people who are going to buy them are going to be the real aficionados. And mm-hmm. and these, are, as long as the scenes are, are good scenes in themselves, and that there is a place for them that feels kind of organic and doesn't doesn't really kill the story, I'm happy for for the fans to to see this. Stuff. What would you say was the most difficult thing to accomplish in this? Three films. The three films. Yeah. Most difficult scene to accomplish. Um. And you think it was all a bit difficult? <laughs> <laughs> what was actually easy to accomplish? Um. It's uh, the scenes that were the most difficult to accomplish. I mean, the, the, the scenes that are technically the most difficult are obviously the big sort of battle scenes. Um. But the scenes where the scenes where you work hardest are actually the, the the emotional scenes because you're really trying to help the actors get their performances and it's very intense, you know. And the, and um, um, I don't. I mean, it was all it was all difficult. I can't remember one scene that was particularly more difficult than any other. So there you have it. That was um, a very poor audio recording of an interview with Peter Jackson from December 2nd, 2003. Some interesting nuggets there, right? He was still in the heady days of Return of the King. The Hobbit hadn't been inflicted on us yet, which, you know, I think in my mind kind of sullies Peter Jackson's Middle Earth legacy a bit. Um, Whereas as the Return of the King, you could honestly say, you know, is the uh, crowning achievement of uh, his, his rendition of Middle Earth. So I hope you enjoyed that. I do, like I said earlier, I do have like 10 other, eight other, nine other uh, recordings, including, I'll just list them all here, Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Sean Astin, Bernard Hill, Andy Serkis, 
Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd, Howard Shore, Philippa Bones, Boyens, sorry, she's the screenwriter along with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, Liv Tyler, and Vigo Mortensen. Some are shorter, like 10 minutes, some are longer, like 25 minutes. Um, but they're all, you know, they're all interesting to listen to. So eventually um, we'll get to those and put all those on here. Um, in our extended edition, I'm going to go ahead and talk about some of the pictures that I've got from this event from December 2nd. I was in the red carpet premiere. I got to stand in line. I got to like watch all the people go by. I got to interview the folks coming by. Some people looked at us as a fan site and just kind of kind of walked by. <coughs> Liv Tyler. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a heady event. And um, I'll talk about that a little bit more. So if you want to listen to that, go to thewondering.com slash member. Become a member and, uh, and you can listen to that. You can get all of our extended podcasts where we talk more and more in depth, uh, both on the Silmarillion, on fairy stories, and even here on a 20-year-old interview with Peter Jackson. So I uh, hope to see you there. And if not, thanks for listening. Appreciate you. Take care.